Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Fan Fuel. I'm Alex Harrington. I'm joined by Colton Cranmore and Nathan Ball. And today we'll be talking a little bit about NASCAR and criticizing them quite a bunch for some of their recent things. Uh, but before that, let's go ahead and get into this weekend's action. This weekend, guys, we saw a couple of different races at Talladega, but we also saw an IndyCar race in St. Petersburg that I forgot to mention on the outro of last week's show because for some reason I thought it was a couple of weeks away, but it wasn't. Uh, did you guys watch? It was a pretty decent race despite the dominance. Yeah, I actually did watch most of that race. It was better than I expected for a street race just because usually you don't get that level of passing in St. Pete. So there are a lot of things going on in the race. Um, it was one of those where you kind of have to learn to look past whoever's leading the race because even though Herta was kind of in his own zip code, they were still good racing behind him, and there was a lot of things going on, so I actually enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and he just he was the class of the field. He walked away. I thought the caution there near the end of the race was going to get some of those guys on a different on the different pit strategy up there, but it really didn't do anything for them. Uh, we saw the two Penske cars on reds still not have anything for Colton, who was on blacks at the end. Uh, but it was a pretty decent race. We saw Sebastian Bourdais get into the rear end of a couple of the cars in the in the first turn, and he had what looked like a camera hanging off, and they just would not stop mentioning that over the broadcast, which I thought was pretty funny. Something about the race, uh, Jimmy Johnson had two cautions, and I had a question myself at this point. How long is it going to take Jimmy Johnson to really show up and be that Jimmy Johnson that we all know and love? I mean, he didn't really have a great three years of his last few seasons in NASCAR, so is is he ever going to show up, or is 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 it just going to be that steep of a learning curve that he can't come over it? Oh, man. That's tough for me to, to say for sure because he's obviously got a long year to go, but I think that, yeah, he'll learn. He'll become competitive over time. I just don't know if he's going to – you know, do what he did in NASCAR and say, hey, look, he's going to win a bunch of races and whatnot. I think that if he can become a competitive top 10 car, then he'll have achieved most of his goal because he obviously wants to be there to have fun. And you can tell he's sort of not living or dying. So I think that the speed will probably come because he's enjoying what he does. I don't think he's ever going to get laid down on himself, so. I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes more competitive. I just don't know if he's going to be a winner. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know if we'll ever see Jimmy Johnson win an IndyCar race. Um, and again, I'm new into the IndyCar. Uh, he's not racing ovals, right? No, he's uh, not. No. He's not, yeah. So, I mean, you take what learning curve he does have in IndyCar and you multiply it because, I mean, he's – I mean, I could probably count on my hands and toes how many road course races he's actually done well in a NASCAR. So, I, I don't think we'll ever see him win a race. To be honest, I think he's going to have closer to, like, Danica Patrick kind of stats in IndyCar without the win, you know, just kind of mid-pack most of the time. And granted, once he figures it out, and I think he will, um, it's just going to take a little bit of time for him. Yeah, I mean, we've only got really two sample sizes. Of course, he's done testing and stuff like that. Um, Probably just the stopping ability and the cornering ability is still something that's probably – He's getting used to, I mean, I know he locked the brakes up and went into 
wall at the hairpin right before they went back on the the front stretch there this weekend. But I feel like he's not really used to the limits. And so when he was like, okay, well, I can go a lot harder, he went too hard. So I think it's going to be like an ebb and flow. And maybe by the fourth or fifth race that he's in, he'll be a, a solid contender for, for one of those mid, mid-pack spots. I wouldn't be surprised if he finished, you know, top 15 consistently uh, in the latter half of the season. Yeah, and I think one of the things, too, is with stock cars, they slide around a whole lot more, and you're kind of used to finding that edge, whereas the open-wheel guys are more used to kind of really keeping the car stable and knowing, okay, well, I can get on the gas now coming out of the corner and the rear end won't slide. And I think he may still be trying to slide that ass end out a little bit um, as part of the deal. Yeah, I think the thing with any car is that their cars seem to run more on a more on a, a knife edge like, like most open-wheel cars do. They're probably the most they're probably the open wheel cars that you can manhandle more than any other class just because they're high power low down force so i think that he'll he likes driving the cars the only problem is that they're so much more sensitive than a stock car you know like like colton said you're pretty much you're more on the ragged edge in the open car than you on the stock car so even if the stock car is harder to race around people than the indie just drive a mushroom in general because he got cold tires and that kind of stuff he's not really used to for Singapore's. And something that is interesting to think about, I know that there were there were talks about Alexander Rossi's somewhat career in the Formula One ranks and stuff like that. They were talking about his ability to grow up with people, racing them all the time wasn't there, and that's why it was hard for him in Formula One. So it might be something similar as well as Jimmy Johnson's raced in stock cars for the last 18, 19 years. And he raced around these guys. He knew what they were going to do and all this stuff. So not only is he having to figure out the cars, but he's having to figure out the culture of the drivers themselves, because IndyCar drivers, most of them go a little bit more balls to the wall um, than NASCAR drivers, just because of the precision needed to drive those cars fast and and I think that that's going to be a struggle with him once he starts racing them more because he doesn't have the experience with those particular drivers of where they're going to put their cars in certain situations. Yeah, I think I would agree with you in that part. I just think that he's sort of more, like I said, he's more used to a different type of company. He's starting this so late. It's a difficult thing to do just because the only other cars he's driven that are even remotely similar which he's only driven for like a year or even half a year because the current Daytona prototypes are a lot quicker than the older ones. So I would probably, I'd probably expect most of this year to be him getting used to the limits of the car more than anything. Because if you got to race people, you first have to be able to drive. The first few races are going to be him learning how to And then to touch on what Colton said, he said something about hanging the ass out and all that kind of stuff driving a stock car, well, they are going to be looking at doing around 1,000 horsepower on the road courses as soon as next season. So that might help him get back to something like that where he's going to be driving a lot more with the throttle than maybe as pinpoint accuracy with the steering as as, as you do in open-wheel cars. Um, from, from my experience, sim racing, because that's all the <laughs> racing experience I have, it, it seems to be more of a 
this is easier to do but harder to master when it comes to an open wheel car versus a stock car is is a lot harder to drive for a beginner if that makes any sense at all yeah yeah no that makes I mean that makes sense to anyone who who watches stock car racing or knows about it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I would agree fully. I I think it's gonna be fun to watch, but I think a lot of people have to learn to temper the expectations when it comes to him. Yeah, and that's a problem with a lot of stuff when we do crossovers and stuff because you see guys like Kurt Busch go out and and finish sixth in the Indy 500, or Fernando Alonso go out and lead a bunch of laps in the Indy 500. So when you see other guys do it, you're always like, oh well. If X person is going to go race in X series, then they should do well. Like Kyle Larson won his second super late model race. Well, then, you know, he should be able to go out and race a Indy car at Texas and lead a lot of laps and maybe even have a chance at a win. But, you know, it's it's not really fair to put that much pressure on people, especially Jimmy, who's so late in his career. Um, adaptability goes away with age, and and I'm sure that's something that he's going to be struggling with with the rest of this year. We also saw three races this weekend in Talladega. Saturday was a doubleheader with the Xfinity and ARCA cars, and the ARCA race was a lot more exciting than the Daytona race was earlier this year, and that surprised me. I don't know if you guys watched that race or not, but it, it was it was pretty dicey. I'm surprised that the race was even good. Because usually the Arca Super Speedways are not good these days. Ever since they went to the Gen 6. I was at Daytona, obviously, where literally nothing happened aside from the crash. So I was impressed. Again, obviously the Venerini guys are getting annoying because they work together so well that it kind of ruins the race. But hey, at least they at least there was a finish this time. At least they weren't seeing Yeah, it was a it was a good race by Arca standards. I did like that it wasn't just the couple cars leading up front and kind of running away with it. And, uh, I mean, usually, usually arc races at super speedways, like Nate said, not a whole lot goes on. Um, so it was a good change of pace for the arc series. Um, I still have Derek Lancaster in my thoughts and prayers because we still have not gotten an update from NASCAR, nor have they even mentioned his vicious crash, um, which is, is real disappointing to me. Yeah. The latest that I saw is that he's been, taken slowly off of his sedatives and um, that he's slightly responsive, uh, but still in critical condition. So hopefully he makes a full recovery. I know they were saying on the broadcast, he had recently uh, returned to racing after a a neck injury. And now with this, um, it took him a while to get out of that car and all that smoke inhalation. Uh, He's got third degree burns everywhere. I just hope he's going to have a really good recovery. That race was pretty exciting. Uh, it came down to the wire, though. There were six lead changes in that green green and white checkered. So in one lap, we saw six lead changes. Um, I, I'd love to see uh, any race like that. Uh, so uh, I, w- I wish that ARCA had a second lap there. I was wanting for, for more. I feel like we would have got a better finish with a true green white checkered, but it is what it is. Moving on to the Xfinity race, though. We didn't get a full race. It rained out. Uh, which is always a little bit of a bummer, but for Jeb Burton, he got his first Xfinity win, and it was a long time coming for him. Uh, what did you guys think of that race and Jeb's win? I'm happy that Burton won the race. And I like seeing people win, new people win. But man, I had to—you'd be lying if I said it wasn't anticlimactic because you know we were the race was getting good. We were setting up for a grandstand finish, and sure enough, the rain comes. Like we never, we never really got to see 
we never really got to get up on the edge of our seats, if that makes sense, because we were building up the whole way, and then it started raining right when we were about to get to the end. It was a really, really cool race to see. I love the Xfinity cars, especially the super speedways. I'm really bummed that my dude Harrison couldn't get it done. I'm rooting for the other Burton. Um, super cool to see Jeff win it, or Jeb, excuse me. Um, but can we all agree that rain burnouts are the best burnouts? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I like my smoke, man. I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was cool seeing him slide around. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it looks fun, but it does feel weird sometimes because it's almost like a video game where there's no smoke. That makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, I kind of felt bad for him, kind of like with the uh, Chris Busher win in Pocono, right. where he had to celebrate inside, so he wasn't actually in victory lane. They were in the garage, so that, that would have been kind of weird, kind of awkward to me. Um, but heck of a job. I mean. That's not somebody I was thinking would win the race, but, I mean, Colic has been dominating Talladega lately and really super speedways and Xfinity in general. Um, so that was an interesting interesting win, to say the least. That's another spot taken up by uh, a winner, and that's going to make it harder for those mid-pack guys like Brown and Clements and the others to, to get into the playoffs. So... We'll see what happens with that, uh, but Sunday, the most polarizing race of the weekend, I'd say. There was a lot that happened Sunday, and also a lot that didn't. Uh, we had a bit of a train race there in the middle of stages, and I saw on Twitter where people were saying that this race was too long, and when I listened to DBC this week, I believe it was Brett Griffin said, the drivers are showing you that it's too long because, hey, we're just going to sit up here and, and make laps. Do you guys agree with that sentiment? Because I'm, I'm I'm strongly against it myself. I think 500 miles at Talladega is essential. Yeah, I agree. I think that I don't understand why so many people want shortened races because I think that it, it almost the short races almost feel like, let me rephrase that, growing up watching 500-mile races, you're used to being there for the whole afternoon and if the race is 300 miles or 200 miles and it doesn't feel that long, it's like, is that it? Like, I don't want it to be like a horse race where it's one lap. You know, I think that it's just a product of differing opinions and different attention spans. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with, with both of you guys. Um, I'm a huge fan of the 500 mile races. Um, I think if we do end up shorting the races, then they're still going to run single file at Talladega because even if it's 120 laps, they're still going to have 110 laps where they're not trying to race super hard. And so what's to say they don't run single file for another 40 that time? And then if they cut it down another 20, what's to say they don't run single file for another 40? You know, they can keep cutting it down, cutting it down until we have 10-lap races everywhere. Um, 500 miles is about perfect. And I don't get why people bitch about single file racing. Like, if they understood completely why they're racing single file, you know, they get strung out on the high side at these big super speedways, it would make more sense as to why they do it. Yeah, and and to your point, I mean, go and look at last year's 400-miler at Daytona. I mean, we didn't get it for very long, but around the pit cycles on a couple of those stages, we had some train racing at the playoff cutoff race. So I, I, I will say that having a... 100 miles whacked off of a Talladega race for no reason is not going to do anything for it. Um, and the only way that I think that would be probable is if they make the spring race a night race 
Um, but they're not going to put lights at Talladega, so there's no reason to shorten it. And I only say that because night races should be a little bit shorter because we don't want them to last all all night, in my opinion. So I, I don't know. I mean, Colton, you're right. Uh, shorter race doesn't matter. They're still going to be single file at some point. It's just a part of speedway racing. Everybody's like, hey, we're getting too aggressive. A couple cars wrecked. Let's save face and save save all of our aggression for later. That way we make it to lap uh, 188 or 200, depending on if we're here or Daytona. But the race itself, uh, we saw a lot of different things. There were some issues with some lap cars getting in front of like Ryan Priest and them uh, coming up. And then something interesting is that Denny Hamlin comes over to radio and is frustrated with Bubba Wallace because he's not working with his Toyota teammates and he's driving all over the place, and it's the same thing that he did at Daytona. I find this pretty funny uh, just because Boss Man's out there with you racing, and he's calling you out on the radio. Well, I think that what his issue is is that he doesn't know when to stay in line rather than – like I get it at the end. You have to work for yourself, but I think that like you saw before the caution came out with four laps to go, the bottom lane was starting to form up, and he was at the end of the bottom lane. He got down to the bottom, and – for whatever reason, he would pull out the three wide middle and keep side drafting the bottom, and he'd slow the entire bottom lane down. I I don't. Sometimes I think he's good at what he does when it comes to that type of racing. I just think that sometimes he isn't as calculated as his bosses because clearly, for whatever reason, he seems to be racing when he doesn't need to race, and vice versa. I think. His racing this weekend was a product of two things. One is that he's in a competitive car for really the first time in his Cup Series career. Um, yeah, he did all right at Super Speedways in the 43, um, but he's never really had the confidence behind his equipment to go out and run well. Um, so I think that's that's a big thing is he's never ran in this, cl- this good of a car before. Um, and then you look at the fact that well, when he was in the 43, he had to be super aggressive. And so he right. doesn't really know what to do with these huge runs when he gets them. And so he may get, and I saw it a couple times where he was on the bottom and he got a good run on the car in front of him. And instead of pushing the whole line, he jumped out of line and it ended up right. shooting it backwards. Um, yeah, so I that's think it's going to be a learning curve. I think at Daytona, it'll be a lot different, especially with Denny sending him down and saying, Hey, here's, here's what you need to do in this situation. Um, so I look forward to him doing better at the next super speedway race. Right. And it's yeah, not like he hasn't already grown this, this year in other areas uh, at other racetracks. So it's something that can be reined in, but he, he was very overly aggressive and I'll agree that that probably stems from what he had to do to lead laps at speedway races in the 43 car. But now that he's got a better car under him, um, being that aggressive just doesn't make sense. And also with the 43 car, he was pretty much in no man's land. He might've had some help with the RCR cars or he might not have, but now he's got four, and in this race, five other Toyotas with the 96 as well that are are there to push himself and the rest of the Toyotas up to the front. So he needs to learn a little bit of that teamwork and then meet that expectation from Denny, and that will help all of them. But to the same regard, Denny's an extremely aggressive guy. He always is taking moves. He's working with guys that aren't Toyotas as well. So there needs to be a little bit more, I guess, synergy between all of the Toyotas if they're going to try and, and, and say something like that 
based on him not working with his teammates. Um, even if he's not working with his teammate, he's got to work with somebody and 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 get up there and get after it. Uh, maybe if it's a stint house or a, a Blaney or, or whoever. I mean, that's what Ryan Newman and and then he did when the tandem racing was a thing, or or Dale Jr. and Tony Stewart did their whole careers together at, at plate races, and they were never teammates. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that your friends are where you find them. And I think that the manufacturer gangs are sort of – they're trying to erase that mentality when reality it would give you a better chance to win. I think – and this may be stemming off topic here, but I think the manufacturer games would do a lot better if they just stuck to the pitch strategy instead of trying to all run together. Yeah. Um, let the cars duke it out and, you know, don't spin a Ford out, right? If you're driving a blue oval, don't spin another Ford out. You know, don't get on their left rear and really push them hard. But just stick with that with a pit strategy to make sure your cars at least stay kind of in the pack. Um, And then other than that, and I think it's what we normally see is guys will still kind of, like Alex said, find friends where you can find them. And I I, I think this this whole manufacturer strategy is is evolving or at very least um, maturing a little bit. Yeah, and we don't know exactly what we're going to see with the next-gen car, but I feel like we... We're going to see the the guys know that there's only two more races with this package potentially left. Um, so we might see totally different races in the fall races of, of Daytona and Talladega. So I prefer myself not to have any of these manufacturer orders. You know, we saw three of the Gibbs cars lay back. I want to say it was 2016 uh, fall playoff race for Dega. All day didn't do anything, and then Denny was racing his heart out to go into the next round of the playoffs. Boring. And then a couple years later, 2018 or 2019, fall Dega race, it's all for the Stuart Haas guys up front in a train just mowing the field down. I don't enjoy that. I don't think anyone does. I think if if we're going to promote parity and chaos, I'd rather see it on track at these at these four events because – that's that's what they're marketed as. So well, why am I not getting it? Yeah, I don't know. It's just hard to explain. Speaking of that chaos and everything, um, a lot of criticism has come for this current package uh, because of these big runs and all that stuff and Joey Logano flips. And I myself find it ironic that the guy that does the most blocking and has made some of the worst decisions in plate racing even before this package was put out there is a guy that gets flips and the first one to come out of the car and say, we need to change this. This has got to stop. It's almost like the bully in the playground when he gets pushed down says, okay, I don't want to play this game anymore. Um, I, I found it super, super ironic um, that he was the one to come out and say, all right, well, we got to put an end to this. Yeah. I think that the problem is so many people always blame the wrong thing for going airborne. I've seen Logano and many other people say, oh, it's the spoiler's fault. Oh, it's the spoiler's fault. But what that doesn't explain for is that Kenseth blew over 2016, small spoiler. You know, Elliot almost blew over, small spoiler, 2017. Um, they've been blown over since the 70s, and I think the one common denominator from all those blowovers is that ever since roof laps, cars never really blow over on their own anymore. They always have to get hit from another car while they're spinning. So I think they I don't understand why they blame the spoiler for that kind of stuff because I don't I don't understand I don't understand how they don't know that already. I think they're just looking for an excuse to change the package because 
I'm sure the guy that control likes to control the field doesn't like it when you can't control the field like you can't in this package. Right. Yeah, I mean this package is probably my favorite package, uh, other than the tandem racing, which I know we'll never get anymore. Um, but it, it provides for a big runs, um, incredible racing, position changes, all that stuff. It's very entertaining to watch, so I don't know why I would want to go away from it. I mean, you look at the Gen 6 initial Speedway package in 2013, and all of those races were boring train races, and and people were complaining about this race going around the top. Well, I remember the 2013 Daytona 500 being 180 laps around the top. And, and NASCAR has found a formula that works, that's entertaining, um, that's – in my opinion, everyone's saying this is based on luck. It's, I think it's showing more skill because you see the same four or five guys up front each week. But you look back at in time, and speedway racing has always been plagued by big ones and flips. And and I don't think there's any package that gets you away from that. Even the tandems had their problems with, with a couple big wrecks. I, I just don't get the hate for the package. Anyone who understands physics in general will know that it's not preventable at a certain speed, lift-wise. If you get hit in the rear while you're spinning, it just pops a car in the air and the rest is history. So. You add in the laws of physics, and you're going to have the Brennan Gons and the Joey Logano's going over all the time. These are supposed to be the best in the world at stock car racing, so they should be able to handle that, right? If I look back at Joey Logano's race that he won at the, for the Daytona 500, you see that famous picture where there's three deep for like 11 rows, and then he's just out front. Well, I remember those races, you know, where the leader could just control the pack and no one else behind them could make any moves. Well, those were still kind of boring to me. I mean, yeah, the cars were condensed, but they weren't really doing anything, and... You know, I can see where you were saying the runs were being – you could see the runs coming and all that stuff. But, I mean, I, at this point, and this is going to sound really bad, but I'm comfortable with the fact that the cars are so safe that we just have a little bit more carnage for the fact that we can have actual passing going on at these speedway races. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that there's no – Chris Gaypart said it best. There's no – particular super speedway package that's been tremendously safer or more dangerous than the other they have all had the same level of risk whenever the car gets backwards and it gets hit by another car it's going to go airborne it doesn't matter what package you're racing so i think that at the end of the day you know there, there's always going to be that risk and i think that a lot of the newer fans today seem to be unable to accept that risk and I don't fault the drivers. I mean, I understand that they don't they don't have to like it, but at the same time, that's basically part of the racing. There's no there's no surefire way to remove that risk. There's always going to be a risk, whether it's a a fifty percent chance or a ten percent chance. There's never going to be a way to make the car stay on the ground. So you might as well you might as well just you have to live with it at some point. There's there's just a natural danger to that type of racing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, we saw guys like Davey Allison and Ricky Rudd, or uh, Rusty Wallace, excuse me, not Ricky Rudd. Well, Ricky Rudd to a point. Um, as soon as our car got sideways or backward, they picked up. And then they added roof flaps to prevent that. And we still saw Michael Waltrip and Elliot Sadler get up. You know, and then they, they brought in the COT, and we know what that did. Um, 
So, I mean, you're not going to change physics. Once you flip downforce around, it becomes lift. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the people misunderstand is that they assume that the bigger spoiler makes more lift. Honestly, every blowover since 2010, since they took off the COT wings, there has not been a single car to blow over by itself. Every single time, the car was hit, which caused it to get up in the air. So that's that's a very good sign that NASCAR's safety measures are actually working better than people think. Right, and then... I don't know if it's just, like, new generation of fans coming in and not knowing any better, um, which is, I, I think, what you're alluding to. But, I mean, there's a little bit of complacency in in the fact that we know that we're going to go racing for this much, um, this fast, these cars are going to do this, that, and the other, that maybe we don't wreck as much as we used to. So when something like this happens, which, to me, the Logano crash was nothing. Uh, just even like the Brendan Gone crash last year was not anything scary to me when I saw it. I was like, oh, he just mm-hmm. rolled over. You know, I remember watching Elliot flip over seven or eight times twice at Dega, and that was a little bit more scary. I mean, when when we see stuff like this happen, we're fans who've watched for a long time. Maybe a new fan's like, holy crap, that's crazy. Someone's going to get hurt. So I, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, and- first of all, I think part of the problem is that the real problem with that crash was the roll cage. The fact that the that the halo bar on the right above his driver's side window was pushed down onto his head. I think that everyone's so busy yelling at the package and saying, we need to change the package. We need to change the spoilers. But why is it that no one's focusing on fixing the roll cage? Because you're not going to prevent the flip, so you might as well strengthen the roll cage so that when the cars inevitably do flip, that you're not going to have a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. To your point, Alex, uh, when I saw the Logano flip, I didn't think it was much either. And I think that has a lot to do with we're getting comfortable with how safe these cars are, which I think the Newman wreck proved that we should still be a little bit wary, um, especially in the fact that when Logano got out and he said a roll bar hit his head and then the pictures proved it, he couldn't even take the window net down. They had to cut it from the bottom to get him out of the car. So that's a, that's a big issue with me. Um, but like Nate said as well, the roll cage is, is the bigger issue in this in this equation here. Um, and I've heard that the next gen car is going to have a super, super stiff roll cage. Um, I'd assume it's going to be thicker walls around the tubing, but then you go to William Byron's crash in the next gen car. When he hit the wall, I guess I, we haven't seen any data on this, but the, the G force impact was supposedly completely ridiculous. And that's all getting unloaded on the driver. So I think there's a, there's a, a happy medium here that we just haven't found yet. To where we know we have the safety with the Hans and the seats and everything else that goes on with the cars that we know is is mostly safe. Um, And we just got to get the cage around it to get to the point where it crumples enough to absorb impact, but not enough to where it's impeding the drivers. Yeah, I mean, that's like kind of your street cars. They're really, uh, I guess, rigid uh, around the the actual core where, where the passengers are sitting with the A and B pillars and all that, but they have crumple zones everywhere else. So I know it's a little bit harder to do for a race car because a crumple zone might be dangerous at 200 mile an hour impacts. But I mean, I'm sure well, we're going to get there. I'd honestly, I would honestly argue that the road car is less rigid than the race car because if you've seen, like I've had a friend that rolled over, his cousin rolled over a Ford Expedition and he sends me pictures. He said that the entire like A and B post was crushed down. Like 
almost down to the windowsill. So it's like yeah, well, and road cars are a different different animal because yeah. they don't have the roll bars in there. But I think mm-hmm. there is a happy medium. Maybe in ten years, twenty years, with whatever next gen car we come out with after, you know, I think what Gen Seven, whatever it is, coming up next, um, to where we do have a carbon fiber tub like the Indy cars do yeah, around the driver, idea. and then the rest of it is, you know, a little bit. I don't want to say flimsy, but roll cage that will give in hard impacts. Right. I think that the I've always thought that the philosophy would be at the front clip and the rear clip should be the ones that bend the most because the front clip's designed, I think, so that when the, the front of the car gets crushed, the engine gets pushed out of the car, down out of the car, rather than being pushed back into the driver. So I think right. that's fine. Same with the rear clip. I think the fuel cell is designed to be pushed down and not in. So I think right. the only area that needs to stay rigid is the roof. So if you can find a way to make the roof you know, non-collapsible, which is obviously going to be impossible, but if you can find a way to make the roof of the car and the sides of the car to be non-compressible, that'll be much safer because, like you said, the area around the driver and above the driver's head should be the area that has the least amount of kick. Yeah, because we don't right, want these right. guys getting hurt, but we know that we also want insanely aggressive racing at the same time. And there is a happy medium. I I feel like we're there, but also I... I get the knee-jerk reactions when stuff like this happens. Um, I know NASCAR made a slight change when when the Newman wreck happened. Um, I mean, we're still seeing the same problems in quotation marks as as we saw then. But I, I I'm thoroughly entertained, um, and I guess, like you said, Colton, I don't expect any of these guys to get hurt. So at the moment, I'm okay with it. You have to. I mean, I think. There's always room to improve safety wise. I just hope you there's you don't have to you also don't have to, to clutch your pearls in every single crash at the same time. But I don't I'm not saying we should be complacent, but I think that there has to be a, a rational response to these crashes rather than either not caring at all or panicking too much. There has to be a middle ground. Yeah, just take the thing yeah. to the R D center and then figure out what you can improve on and that's that's about as much as we need to do. And speaking about fixing things and a little bit more in a controversy, uh, one of our friends from the NFL, Chad Ochocinco, was watching the race and he tweets out about how he's frustrated that he can't understand the strategies of these teams because there's a commercial every 10 laps, uh, to summarize what he said without using expletives. Um, But, yeah, I got to say it. Uh, this has been a complaint for a good amount of time with the NASCAR fan base. I mean, there were even some times where I remember getting on race threads from the NASCAR subreddit, uh, and they were literally timing how many commercials, and, and they had a, a spreadsheet of who had most commercials during the during the race, and and and. It seemed to lull for a little bit, but it seems we're right back in, if not in a worse position than we were. Yeah, I yeah. agree so much with commercials. I, think it, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in 2013, Coke 0400 got a lot of attention with other drivers. Even IndyCar drivers were you know, kind of laying into TNT about how many commercials they had. And 
it's never seems to change. I don't understand why the plate race has had more ads than any other race because theoretically there's more close racing in these kind of events. So why would you have more commercials in them? Yeah. 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 I agree completely. And, and I, I posted this on Twitter for those of you that follow me. Um, you'd never watch an NFL game and then cut back from commercial and say, well, you just missed this touchdown. Or, you know, imagine if they went to commercial every three plays in football or every at-bat in baseball. That's that's really what it's like in NASCAR. Um, and to DVC's point, that's why you have the stage cautions, was to give you that extra guaranteed commercial break in there. You know, and I know I tweeted a joke about, you know, we're going to have lap commercial breaks at lap four, lap seven, lap ten. Um, but that's really what it seemed like. Yeah. Um, there was, I mean... I mean, stupid amount of commercials. And even when they went side by side, when they came back into the race, they would go to a full screen Fox logo for, it seemed like 10 seconds. And then they right. come back into the race and the coverage. And I'm not, I mean, it's really hard to get new fans in the sport. And even the older fans, I don't remember this many commercials when I was watching 10, 15 years ago. Why are we having so many now? Is it really, are they really hurting for that much money as a broadcaster? I, I think and, they and might to be. That point, and, and they might be, but to that point, why don't you offer a subscription system to where people pay $15, $20 a month? Because I would absolutely pay that for the commercial-free broadcast of the race. Right. And Honestly, I, why, can't they get a, why can't they get a sponsor like F1 does with Miller's Punch to make the American races commercial-free? Because F1 has much less of a presence in the United States, and they're still able to find a sponsor that foots the bill for every single race. So why why can't the five title sponsors at NASCAR do the same thing? You know, Bush Beer, Coca-Cola, you know, Monster Energy, all those title sponsors, why can't they pitch in and do the same thing? Because it's not that they can't. I think it's just that American, American advertising and marketing has been centered around we need commercials every 10 seconds. There's no... Yeah. And it's I different. Did. I think F1's European idea has commercial free stuff over here, and I really like it. I uh, I watched the race back just for a little tidbit, and I counted all the commercial breaks, and not counting the stage breaks, we had a commercial every fourteen green flag green flag laps. That was including. You want to know the funny part? The funny part is that they said stages would have stages would mean less commercials, and they pretty clearly lied to us. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think. When they came in and did that, I think that was more of an NBC thing. And they just thought when they were coming in that they were going to get the money back. But we've been steadily declining in viewers. So I think it's a little bit of uh, we got to take this because they paid all this money for the broadcasting rights. And, you know, we didn't show up and watch as fans, which it's kind of bullcrap, but also it makes sense. Um, To Nathan's point, I think that. The mother's thing is is a very good example of what we could do. Um, we've got rolling billboards across the track the whole time. There's billboards on the side of the track in the in the infield grass for the trials everywhere around the walls. There's advertising. We could simply have a commercial free broadcast on air, sponsored by title sponsor. You know, Coca-Cola does the first six races all the way down the line. And and maybe we have little ads pop up like we do 
on the ticker and, and the lap counter and all that stuff throughout the race of different other stuff and just go about our day. Um, but Colton, I was thinking earlier to myself about how it would be really nice if I could sit here and pay NASCAR $5 a month like I pay Supercars $5 a month to watch all of their stuff. Now, Supercar subscription services through YouTube TV, you get every practice session, every lower class that they have racing there, practice session, qualifying session, and racing session. So I feel like NASCAR fans would pay $5 for each cup and uh, practice and qualifying session. Add fifteen dollar, add it up to fifteen dollars for all three series, national series for qualifying and the race. Maybe tack on another five for twenty dollars a month to add in practice once we get that, and another five for twenty five dollars a month to add the Mexico, Canada, and Euro series as well. I think that would be a very good tiered option system that they could give broadcasters part of that money and the team's the other part of that money and keep some for their self. I, I would pay $25 a month just for that. Oh, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, I already pay for flow racing and I pay for dirt vision. I pay for all this other stuff. 20 bucks is what I spend at McDonald's twice a week. You know, I mean, that's, that's nothing to me to get this all access NASCAR viewership kind of experience. Um, and then plus, if they added old races on there, shit, they could make it 40 bucks a month. And I'd still pay that just to Hell be able yeah. to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to get that broadcast free or that commercial free broadcast on there, um, I'd man, I'd pay almost an arm and a leg for that. Um, that's how much these commercials are bothering me. Right. And, and, you know, we pay probably close to 100 bucks plus whatever for the Internet for cable. Um I would cut my cord because I really only use cable for NASCAR and a few shows here and there. I can I can figure out a way to find a show on one of their streaming platforms where it's Petheramount Plus or you know Peacock or whatever to just sit there and pay forty dollars a month to get all this access and I'm saving money, so of course I'm gonna buy it. And if I say it's good and I get four of my friends to do it. You know, I mean, it might even make NASCAR more popular because it'd be cheaper to watch that way. Yeah, I agree. I think there has to be like that. There needs to be that service available for both cable and streaming because there, there's just no way to. There's no way that we can keep going on like this with all these commercials. I know that it's how they pay and all, but it's really tedious as a fan having to sit through a commercial every five or ten laps. I, I think the commercials are are the biggest that we can see, but that's far from the only problem that we have when it comes to these broadcasts. Myself, I know that we sit here and we watch each week and we complain about boring races, but I've been to enough NASCAR races live to know that there's no way that every race is this damn boring. Um, I can remember, I want to say it was the 2015 or 2016 Atlanta race, where there was cloud cover, that's the only race I've been to that I thought was boring because it seemed like no one could do anything because they were stuck to the track and running the bottom the whole time, right? So the so the broadcasters are always showing the front one, two, or three guys, and they're not racing anybody, or if they are, they're showing them so close up, you can't tell how the car's moving or what's going on behind them. And I think that that's killed the audience from coming in as new viewers than 
the commercials myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I go to a race, whether it be a late model race, whether it be a NASCAR race, um, whether it be a bike race for that matter, I'm not just watching the lead three cars and maybe this one battle that's happening. I'm watching the entire pack. Um, and that's something I don't know if TV will ever be able to kind of replicate. Um, but it's definitely something they can work on. One other gripe that I had about the Fox coverage was I'm a huge Blaney fan, for those of you that know me. And they had, um, well, well over 10 laps after pit stops. By the time that final pit cycle went through to when the caution came out, they never once showed the split. Blaney took four tires, and I never once got to see how far back he was from the pack. They only showed manufacturer logos for about eight laps. Yeah, that's getting really annoying. I think that F1 has a, a nice way of doing it with constant intervals, if that makes sense. I just don't understand that how you can withhold information from diehard fans and feel good about it. Like I understand that the newer fans might not care about that kind of stuff, but fans want to see that stuff. Why are you just oversimplifying it? Well, to me, I would understand having the manufacturer logos incorporated in some way. I feel like NBC does that where they've got the manufacturer logo beside the the number at some points during the race on their vertical um, scoreboard. But, I mean, we could do something as simple as, as putting a color to a manufacturer. We did it with the All-Star Race Neon last year. I mean... That really pisses me off as someone who loves pitch strategy in racing. And like you said, Colton, I want to see the intervals. I want to see who's catching who. When I'm watching a Formula One race, that's exactly what I do because they have it there the whole time. Like Nathan said, I'm watching to see who is going to get past where. And and sometimes it's more entertaining to watch that sidebar where where positions are flipping back and forth rather than what's on screen itself. Yeah. Like I was, I was upset about that as a fan of Blaney. Um, I could never, I mean, I could break out my, my engineering and my mathematics college degree, my PhD and figure out how far back he was getting every lap. But I mean, it's, it, it was ridiculous to see as a fan that I couldn't tell how far back my driver was getting, you know, and, and then to your point, the formula one, um, when I watched the IndyCar race at uh, Baxter, not Baxter, Barber, um, most of the time I was watching those tickers on the side to see who was catching who. And especially towards the end of the race, that became one of the most exciting aspects of the race. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's great to watch the intervals and get to see the numbers behind what you're seeing on the screen. Yeah, it's no different than someone at a baseball, watching a baseball game, getting live you know, changes for ERA and all this other stuff and seeing the guy's scorecard on the on the big screen where it's got all his stats and, you know, his batting average and all that stuff. I mean, yeah. people like numbers. Numbers are fun, especially for nerds like us. I mean, half of the enjoyment that I get from racing is not the side-by-side. It's who's smarter than the next guy, you know, that comers and goers mentality that we had for so long in the 90s and 2000s and even in the early 2010s where we'd have long green flag runs where everybody I'd be watching was was bored out of their minds and I'm just sitting there like all right well if if he comes in in three laps he's gonna have you know a half a tenth better a lap and that could that could get him a position over this guy because he's gonna do 
basically an undercut like you would in Formula One and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I get lost in it. And that's the beauty of racing. And you can do it in any other racing series because they give you that information. I, I watch every week. I know that Kyle Larson drives a fucking Chevrolet. <laughs> like, come on, guys. Right. Right. I don't need Yeah, anything. and to your point, I mean, that's like – if a baseball team didn't – or if a baseball broadcast didn't tell you how many runners were on base or in an NFL broadcast they didn't tell you what yard they were on, you know, I mean, I feel like that's a lot the same. Yeah, this is this is information needed to know what's going on. If I don't know it's it's third and 19 and I think it's first and four, I'm going to be like, okay, well, we got three more downs to, to get, you know, to get a first down and get moving down the field, not – oh, crap, I didn't realize we just got a penalty and now it's third and 19. Uh, there's a likelihood that right. we're not going to have the ball after this down. So, yeah. Exactly. I don't know. It, it, it seems like I know we've been, you know, crapping on the sport and broadcasting right now. Uh, but, I mean, it just seems like we keep shooting ourselves in the foot as, as an industry. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that let's continue to – shit on um, NASCAR for a little bit because I wanted to talk about point systems today. Um, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to NASCAR, but let's just go ahead and talk. Um, Nathan, I'll let you start. Fundamentally, what is wrong with the playoffs in your opinion? I, I think that the problem with it is that it doesn't reflect who the best driver was over the course of the season. It's not like another sport where – you know, I think racing is different. I don't think that your first 26 races should not matter at all. I think that they should matter a lot. And racing in general is a cumulative sport. Every form of racing works that way. What the playoffs are doing is it's essentially making something not cumulative anymore. As in, like, yeah, you did really well for the entire year, but now it doesn't matter. Like, you're pretty much discounting the entire body of it. Yeah, and I think... My biggest beef with the playoff system now is that playoffs work well in stick and ball sports where you're playing one team every week. Um, but in NASCAR, you're facing 39 other teams every week. And it, it's just a whole different animal. Um, so to Nate's point, it's like saying the first 26 races only matter this tenth of a percent. And then the last 10 matter 90 percent. Right, and and I don't argue your last uh, your last point about playoffs being okay for for some stick and ball sports. I'd say the majority of the time, the only thing that's good about playoffs is that they're entertaining. Um, I don't think there've ever been a good way to crown a champion in a sport. You look at you look at most sports. We'll look at you know soccer or your or football if you're outside of the U.S. Most of them, other than the American League, the MLS that I know of, don't have a playoff or tournament-style ending. They get points for winning, and then they get points for tying. And whoever and they play at home and away against every team in that league, and the team with the most points wins the championship. So even sticking ball sports – outside of America agree that that's the way to do it. You look at the you look at the NHL, they do the same thing. 2 points for a win, 1 point for an overtime loss. And same thing. Most points gets the um President's Cup at the end of the year. And 
than the Stanley Cup final is different. So their their playoffs are kind of different even than their own championship, if if you really want to look at it that way. Um, I feel like it's entertainment over consistency uh, when we do playoffs in other sports. You know, the NFL is the one where you don't play every team at least once in a season. It kind of makes sense for me there. Uh, but racing, we race against 39 other people every single week. So if we look at it, our fields change every week. Our conditions change every week. The length of our games change every week. So we're not even in the same board as these stick and ball sports because if my track is changing every week and my race links are changing every week, I need to be able to say I was the best at all of them, and you can't do that with the current system. Yeah, I'll agree. I think it's just it's, – it's not what NASCAR is supposed to be. You know, it's not cumulative. It doesn't – doesn't reflect who the best driver was that year. I think that's my biggest issue with it, is that they're pretty much throwing away all their common sense to try and get one more race of entertainment. And it's been failing. I mean, the the season finale has dropped significantly in the last few years, and I think it's directly because it's that one race that matters the most has now, for the majority of fans, not mattered at all. I mean, we see this happen in – 1992 with the Hooters 500, but it, it happened naturally. There were six guys mathematically eligible, and that was a magical race to be a part of, I'm sure. I mean, even the chase iterations, they were 10 race chases. They were basically many seasons that eliminated some of the field from being a part of it. Fans have a disregard for that. I'm one of them. But naturally, after 10 races... Carl Edwards and Tony Stewart tie, tiebreaker being wins. You you can't have a tie with the system that we're in, and so every time that we go in there, we know that hey, four of these drivers, one of them's going to win the championship. And while that sounds exciting on paper, doing it every year, the more and more we do it, the more and more it devalues it. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, what made the '92 Hooters 500 um, so special was because that didn't happen every year. Um, What made the 2011 championship title at Homestead special was because it didn't happen every year. Um, And now what we get with the whole four drivers are tied going into the last race is it kind of dilutes that whole, the magic of the final race. Um, Now we look at it as, well, the best driver probably won't even be in that chase. If he is, he's going to have just the same shot as anyone He's not going to have that 10-point lead, that 3-point lead, whatever you want to dice it up as to where he has to fight for his positions. It's just going to be a flat-out, you know, a, a goose hunt for the very very end. And you can see guys like Chase Elliott, sorry for Chase fans, but he didn't deserve that title last year, go out and dominate the entire race at Phoenix and then walk away with the championship. I mean, yeah, it's like that with the Logano Championship and even um, the Kyle Busch 2015 Championship. I mean, and I you, look at I look at every championship since they started this playoffs um, with regards to maybe 2016 with Jimmy because he was he was pretty good that entire year. Um, but even then, I don't even think with a normal points system he would have won it. 
No, absolutely not. He had the worst average finish of a champion in the modern era history with like a 14-point number. And if you do regular season points, he would have been 11th entering the chase. So it's like, it's really, it's kind of sad the more you look at it because it basically devalues the idea of, hey, let's be consistent all year. Yeah, and then someone just has a strike of bad luck or is just really good at one racetrack, they've got the championship either lost or in the bag, respectively. And that's not fair to the other competitors. That's not fair to the fans of those competitors. You know, I could be a Denny Hamlin fan, Kevin Harvick fan last year, and be okay if they had similar seasons, but they DNF like eight races and Elliott comes and wins the championship. It makes sense. It has merit because he was more consistent. But the fact that those guys both won seven and nine races respectively and didn't win the championship is ridiculous. Obviously, Harvick would have won in any other point system. And the fact that he couldn't pass a car at Kansas is the reason he wasn't even eligible to run for a championship. And it's just a a joke in general. So I think we're all three in agreement with we want a full season-long points format. Um, and with that, I'll kind of scoot into something that I see a lot is you can win 35 races, finish second in the last race, and still lose this championship. Well, something that I found out um, in, the, in the previous pre-chase system, this could happen as well. If you did not lead the most laps and won every race, the second place guy in every race, or finished second in every race, and led the most laps, and then he won the last race, he would win the championship. So this is something that's been used in the recent weeks to say that the playoffs are are fine because the Latford system was just as bad. What do you guys have to say about that? I think that, yes, the Laffer system had a few flaws, but those flaws are far less than the millions of flaws that the playoffs have. You know, for every one flaw that the Laffer system has, the playoffs have ten. And in my mind, if you wanted to get around that problem, I would recommend just make, have the same idea, season-long points. Just make wins and top fives matter a little more than they did in the original system, and you're, you're fixed. Yeah, I mean, Nate, you couldn't have said it better. For what I mean, I think you read my mind here. And it's not hard to do a system like that. I mean, if you look at the system that we have today, minus the stage points, one point per position, and then five points extra for a win. I mean, that's a start in the right direction. Uh, this is a system that would have given us a one-point win, I believe, Kyle Bush over Kevin Harvick in 2019. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. But that would have happened naturally, and it would have been much more entertaining than the, I believe that was Joey Logano's championship that we that we wound up getting. And, and that whole year was the big three and me situation with Logano where he really didn't deserve to be there, and he knew he didn't, but he snuck his way in and then, and then got a championship. And, you know, we've been scrutinizing this thing since 2004, and they just keep making it worse and worse and worse. Is there ever going to be another legitimate championship in racing at this point, do you guys think? I think, yeah, there are. For every, like every once in a while, you'll get a driver win the title that, that kind of rounds all the bases, like, say, Truex in 2017, where he would have literally won under every single format imaginable. And the same for Kyle Busch in 2019. He had the best average finish. He earned the most points. 
So while it is possible, I think it's a lot rarer these days because the likelihood of, say, the best driver going into the final race blowing a tire from the lead, you know, that I feel like that's prone to happen. Like, look at Harvick last year. Easily the best driver, but doesn't have a good one or two races, and that's it. So I think it is possible. You just need, like, perfect luck to, to match it all up. And I think that the playoffs are decided by more what the driver can control than what they can. Yeah, and I agree. I think with exception to those, the 2017, 2019, um, I think we see a true champion once every 10 years in NASCAR should they keep going with this format. Granted, I think NASCAR is going to dig their heels in this and do whatever they can to make it justified, but I think it's a it's a once-in-a-decade kind of thing where we see a true champion in NASCAR anymore. Yeah, and you said something that kind of irks me with, with that, you know, where they're going to dig their heels in this. What exactly is NASCAR getting out of saying to the fans that we know what you want um, because that's basically what they're doing because we've cried about the arrow packages. We've cried about the horsepower packages. We've cried about different rules in how the races are run with, with the yellow line rule and stuff. We've cried about these point systems. I mean, and now we're crying about the, what seems inevitable move of the number from the center of the door to the back of the door and not once has NASCAR admitted that they've made a wrong decision or that the fans don't like it. They seem to push it down our throats that we do like it and that we need to like it. What good is that for them? Right, and I, I mentioned this to you guys earlier this week. I haven't mentioned it out loud, but there, there's a specific business term um, about what happens when a business you know, deploys this marketing strategy or this business strategy and it doesn't work. And instead of accepting defeat and just, you know, changing it up completely, biting, you know, biting the bullet, taking the loss, they dig their heels into it. And that's actually what kills some of these huge corporations. And that may be what we're on the, the front edge of here with NASCAR is losing their their biggest fan base. If they're just digging their heels into the playoffs, digging their heels into this arrow package to try to get new fans. And instead, they're really driving away the huge majority and maybe gaining a tenth of the followers, you know, Right. instead. Yeah, I mean, it's like the tweet I, I put out on the on the podcast order the other day. It's like, I just have no faith uh, in, in, in the brass at NASCAR because they're talking about wanting to shorten stages to, to have less of a green flag run at the end to make the field more compact, which makes me think that we're going to have more than three stages going forward. And, and it just irks me because they're getting away from that traditional, you know, good, hard racing that we used to see. And, and during the peak of NASCAR and that big boom from, from the nineties to the two thousands that they rode, I'm going to say this, the most popular time in the sport was 2006, which was prior or I should say after the, the chase was enacted, I think they were still riding this wave of popularity and the chase had literally nothing to do with it for what I'm about to say. The most boring NASCAR rules packages happened during the boom. And I say that not as as the aero and motor rules. I'm saying that as, you know, we talked about it in an earlier episode about how NASCAR ran the races with the green, white checkers, not being a thing racing to the yellow and all that stuff. 
NASCAR has the most entertaining on-track rules right now, but they bastardize everything else that that big ride up and that big high that we had we'll never be able to sustain because they're pushing other stuff down our throats that just doesn't work and no one likes. I agree completely with that. Um, I think they were riding that wave quite a bit in 2006. Um, and that's why we kind of see this, this popularity with the chase format that they're still trying to gr- kind of grasp a hold of and manipulate to gain more popularity. Um, but I think ultimately it came from the Winston Cup formats where you had to watch every week. Um, and I hear fans complain a lot, well, this is more exciting than the driver walking away with, you know, the last race of the year. It's like, well, then they deserved it. I don't, I don't understand that as a race fan. Like, if they deserve the title to where after 35 races they clinch it, so what if the last race is just for fun? You know, that's when we got some right. really, really good winners. I look back at 2001 with Robbie Gordon winning the final race of the year. Who would have thought that Robbie Gordon would have won at New Hampshire? You know, the final right. race And there were 19 different winners that year. And that that happened exactly. When, that happened when winning wasn't everything, as NASCAR says now. So right. I, exactly, I, I don't get it. I, I I really don't get it. I mean, if you really want winning to mean more, it's a simple fix. Nate said it earlier. Make it pay more. You know, don't have a three to five point margin over second place. You know, give them fifteen to twenty twenty five points over second place, and then you know something like a 2003 season doesn't happen. You know, we have a nine win champion with Ryan Newman, despite the fact that he DNF'd eight times. If it's broke, don't change everything to fix it. Change one or two things and and make it better. If it's broke, change the part. Don't do an engine swap, right? If you need to change the oil, don't change out the whole motor. Just change the oil. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly what you're saying. You're saying that the sport doesn't really make minor fixes. They completely overhaul things when they don't need to do that. Not like they can't make good decisions. I mean, we saw that with the double file restarts, which is now the the cone rule and stuff. So if they'd have just you know slightly tweaked everything little by little and not made too drastic of a change over time, I feel like we'd have a a way better NASCAR than we had now. Yeah, I agree. I think that NASCAR in general will try so hard to to come up with these roundabout solutions when it's pretty much right in front of them. It's like it's like if you have to go it's like if you have to drive a mile, but instead of just driving straight down the road, you're taking a bunch of different ways when the most direct way is right in front of you. Yeah, and then and and that's just where everything's headed with them, I feel. You know, and it's the numbers, the the fact that we're going to be talking about some stuff later in the show, um, it, it's a little bit frustrating. Um, well, we've had a good discussion so far, but let's go ahead and move on to something that was just announced, and that's the Texas All-Star Race. So I don't know, have you guys looked at the the recent release that NASCAR just did? Um, do y'all know what's going to be happening? I saw um, Parker's tweeting about it, but I didn't really dig into it a whole lot yeah i think it's just really confusing more than anything um there's a lot i think it's a whole lot of fluff for a race that probably won't be very good i know you're taking a shot at texas and i think that's that's perfectly fine because they ruined that race track but (laughs) um i'll kind of run down what it is it looks like it's gonna be six rounds i'm not sure why we're not calling them segments anymore 
or stages as we do in the points races? I, I don't know. Um, rounds one through four are going to be 15 laps. There's going to be an invert, but it's going to be a random draw between the first eight positions and the first 12 positions going into rounds two and rounds four. And then round three is going to be a full field invert. And I guess like they used to do with the older all-star race formats, they're going to have like a point system or something like that, or an average finish system and, or, or something. It says, it says something about accumulative spots. So I don't know if maybe they're going to give you a point for each spot that you gain. And maybe they're trying to do that passing point thing like they were going to do in Bristol. I don't know. I'm kind of confused myself, but they're going to have a fifth round. That's going to be 30 laps. And, it's going to be cumulative from the finishes from rounds one through four to have the lineup. Then they're going to have a green flag four-tire pit stop during this 30-lap session be mandatory. And then they're going to have a sixth round of 10 laps to win the race based off the finishing order of the fifth round. And that's just a whole lot of words and... Even me with some of the crazy stuff that I've come up with for for point systems and and race formats and stuff, I, I, it's it's a lot and it's a little bit confusing. So, did you guys understand any of what I just said, or am I speaking Greek? I think this is a really long walk around to try to get to the point that NASCAR is trying to make. Just do a ten lap shootout for the All Star race, run two heat races, and do a shootout. That's 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 all they're trying to do here. Yeah, well, I mean, I know we've had these green flag pit stop mandatory races. I, I remember like the 2001 one where Jeff Burton uh, pitted on the last lap and and won it based on a loophole, and I get that. And I like I like where they're going, but it's like they went too far. Like they have those 90 laps there, and then they've got 10 laps for a final segment, and I don't understand that because for, for people like me seeing pit strategy and stuff like that, having – Tim, having a mandatory pit stop in a 30-lap run sounds really fun. Uh, I, I I just don't understand what they're doing here. And it looks like they're not even paying a million dollars to win. So they're going to have $900,000 to win the race and then $100,000 for the fastest pit crew for that green flag four-tire pit stop. I've Like I said, I think it someone takes away the appeal of the All-Star race because – you're supposed to be racing for a million dollars, and now the, the one marketing tool that made that race stick out from everything else is now gone. Like, there's no, there's no way to hype up the race anymore if you're taking away what made it important in the first place. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, I guess they're coming back at it with, with what they used to do with the pit crew challenge with the hundred thousand dollars for the fastest pit crew, but that's, that's, it's just weird. I I don't understand it. I mean. We're going, we're going to a relatively boring racetrack since the Texas Repave. I mean, that track has sucked, so I understand inverting the field multiple times to, to try and promote passing or something, but what? I, I, I'm more confused than excited now um, about anything. Um, and I know you're probably going to say something about this, Colton, but it seems like they're going to pursue the same tapered spacer that they use at the plate tracks which means that these cars are only going to be producing around 500 horsepower yeah, yeah that's and, a problem 
yeah, that that's a that's a big problem as a fan um, and someone who has watched it for a long time. I'm wondering if they aren't trying to do this whole inverted feel thing to try to see who can pass the best. Um, but as I pointed out before, anything that NASCAR tries in the All Star race, quote unquote, tries is more than likely going to be implemented in the future. So I, depending on how it turns out, I may be somewhat excited, but I, I know I'm not going to be a full supporter of it. I, I just don't understand the decision to make it 500 horsepower. I mean, if we see that the 550 package is not providing anything, it looks like they're going to be running the same aero kit as the 550 package, but they're going to be reducing even further the horsepower. I mean, c- can you make any sense of that? I no, I can't really make much sense of it because they, like Colton said, they're gonna say, "Oh, we're just trying something," and then sooner or later, it's gonna be implemented everywhere, no matter what the feedback is, even if it's negative. They still, they still do things when they're poor, and it's really frustrating as a fan knowing that they basically just do whatever they want. Yeah, and I know we just had a whole discussion on that, but that's that's ridiculous. Um, you know. Our Twitter handle is FanFuelPodcast1, capital F, capital F, capital P, with the number one tacked on, on the end. If you guys have listened this far, please tweet at us at what you think is is going on with this Texas All-Star race because I think the general consensus between the three of us were confused and, and ultimately disappointed with what's going on. So I'm going to steer the direction away from NASCAR for a bit, and we'll talk about this weekend's um action at texas uh by the way and there's a double header with indycar they've done a double header before but we're gonna have two races on the oval and i think they're gonna be pretty pretty stacked uh colton are you excited for i guess your first oval indycar race that's not the indy 500 i'm i'm super excited so i've kept up on texas races in the past just because they are really exciting for IndyCar. I really like the wheel-to-wheel action and oval tracks in IndyCar I think are awesome. Um, so I'm super stoked to check this one out. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm hoping that Texas can be better. Um, the oval package nowadays is not as good, I think, because it, the cars can't really follow each other closely anymore. But Yeah, I mean, uh, we only got better three than no this year, it seems. Uh, the Texas doubleheader uh, I'm going to count that as one race because basically they just split it into two. Uh, the Indy 500 and then the Worldwide Technology race is the only three that I remember being on the schedule. I'm I'm sort of excited for it. I think that the the track always produced classic racing. I, I think about some of the races during the Aero Kit times and how good they were there. It produced uh, what IndyCar considers to be pack racing, uh, but. Now it's really just not that good since the repave. And and I think it's just because they lost the banking in one and two and they've had to set up for two different sides of the racetrack. And I know they tried to make that better for NASCAR, but it hasn't really worked for either series. We really only have one more thing to do in this episode, and that is Kansas. I think it's time for picks. And it looks like Nathan is leading with... Nine points, myself with four points, and Colton with one point. So, Colton, you didn't score any points this this time. Um, and then, Nathan, you finished second, so you got one point. I finally got a race win. So, 
I got two points putting me up there. So it looks like Colton, you'll be going first on picks. Damn it. If only I'd picked Blaney last week. Um, this week, I'm going to go. I think Denny Hamlin gets it done in Kansas. That's a fairly solid pick. He's done it before, um, but now I'm scared because it seems like we all ha- always have bad luck uh, when some someone picks like that. So as a Hamlin fan, I'm a little bit scared. All right, Nathan, you're up. All right, I'm going to go on a limb. Maybe not on a limb. It's a okay. little bit different than who I normally pick. I think I'm going to go on this one. Hendrick has been very good at 550 tracks. Alex Bowman finished third at Kansas last year. He's had a couple of close calls at Kansas over the course of his career because I remember that's where he got, I want to say his first runner-up was Kansas. I'm not sure. Whatever, third, I don't know. But I think that knowing how that team operates, they went really, really anywhere. So I want to go on a limb again because – Last week, I kind of had fun picking old Jones, and I was about to win that until he got a turn in the mobile, so I figured, why not keep the streak yes, up? Yes, well, I had Ryan Blaney, and he got me the win last weekend. I really appreciate that, Colton. Your boy pulled it out for me. Um, I would say I would go with him again, just because he seems to be the guy that has been up front but not capitalized at these 550 horsepower tracks. But I don't think it would be fair for me to pick him two times in a row. So I'm going to have to go with someone who is on a team who has two wins on 550 horsepower tracks but hasn't had a win himself, and that is Chase Elliott. I think that this might be his day that he finally shows up for a race win because he's the only Hendrick car that doesn't have a win right now, and I think that they just – they're going to put everything that they have into getting him a win in the next couple of weeks because the optics of it, of your main guy not being the one who has any wins is, is not good for Hendrick. So I think he'll pull it out just based on that. Uh, we always enjoy you guys uh, listening all the way through, and we'd love for you guys to interact with us more on Twitter. Uh, we want to play in some more fan spotlights that's how colton got this job so you know maybe there's there's more in store you know come join us for a recording session we'll have a good time other than that we'll see you next week thanks bye